What? Uh, welcome back to ConCon, Consciousness Conversations. I'm DR. And I'm Ben. Um, and we are coming from, we're uh, recording at the 2023 The Science of Consciousness Conference, which uh, they kept the, I saw in an old paper, by the way, today, I was looking up some research, and it used to, I think they kept the acronym, and it used to be Toward a Science of Consciousness, and now it's called The <laughs> Science of Consciousness, which I thought was That's interesting. Bold. That's yeah. a bold move. Uh, I wonder what year they decided to make that transition. Um, so I would say to start with, the takeaway for me today was that all the stuff we said yesterday about like, oh, only go to the plenaries or only go to the keynotes <laughs> proved to be kind of the opposite. Um, we had some good um, plenary sessions and maybe some not so great ones. And then the, the concurrent sessions, which are kind of like the small papers that people presented at the end, um, we went to this session, um, it was called NCC, Neural Correlates of Consciousness, that I found really fascinating. Uh, but let's let's talk about the stuff in the morning first. Well, yeah, just to give a meta-analysis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I also bounced for part of the day, so Ben got way more context than me. I think one thing about these very multidisciplinary events I'm used to very targeted conferences. It is it is kind of nice to know what's out there uh, and then know that you don't like it or you don't <laughs> think it's fruitful for like, you know, your own sort of um, benefit. And I think that's that's what happened today. I think these people in the plenary that we're about to trash were top of the line in their field and their yeah. little yeah. Philosoph philosophy bubbles. But it did not. It was not appealing to yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's there were multiple people today. One of the philosophy dudes, and then this guy that I actually kind of liked about the neuroelectrical fields. And he's he he's like pre, like presents at um, medical conferences and stuff. And he's like, man, it's a lot nicer presenting here. Things are a lot looser. Like you can get by. <laughs> you, you can kind of say whatever you want, and people are like not along. Uh, yeah, that, that's very alien to me. Um, but I. I kind of think it's cool. It seems like it's sort of that whole vibe is fostered even by the yeah. organizer uh, in the history of the conference. So I, I think that's kind of cool. It's very alien to me. Yeah. Definitely means certain of these uh, don't appeal to me. But yeah. I don't know if I would have it in any other way. I mean, uh, well, obviously, yeah. I'd, I'd rather have like everything be mind blowing to me and yeah. like, beneficial. Uh, but, but but also it's like the we continue to see people from really interesting places and like top top flight institutions and they're like we saw multiple presenters from MIT today people from like well I don't know all over the place like any any top tier institution you can imagine any top fields medical people um, neuroscience people it's it's quite an interesting mix yeah so it started with um well you want to introduce the the, the first yeah session. yeah so this guy Jason Gilletti he's um a University of Arizona dude so I'm assuming he's kind of like worked pretty closely with um, Stuart Hameroff, the or the organizer, um, and Stuart again hopped up at the end of his session to be like, "Hey, what about quantum? It's like related to this stuff." But his um, his uh, talk was about using um, ultrasound to modify brain brain function. And so, um, if you read a bunch of conscious liter literature, 
a lot they make they make a lot of space for kind of brain lesion studies this is really telling if you are seeing somebody with a brain lesion in a specific region and they have specific impairments that kind of tells you what that that brain region does um and there's non-invasive tools that they've had um which is i'd heard about transcranial direct current stimulation which there's like a really entertaining like this american life episode i think from several years ago about people playing video games and doing this and being really smart um, I ordered one. I don't know if I've told you this. Troy and I ordered one to, and we were too afraid. Well, like once we got it, we were too afraid to actually use it. <laughs> um, but these these tools are like in that episode of uh, This American Life or whatever it is. They're like they're like oh so like how many neurons is this targeting and the, the researcher guy's like oh like millions like billions like all of the like it's like a very like blunt tool and singuletti sort of set is they're they're pioneering this um or i I, wouldn't, I don't know if they're pioneering i think they're refining this technique of using ultrasound waves to target and instead of it seems like instead of this being a, an excitatory thing which would you would get from um TDCS, and then I think there's a magnetic one too um, that uh, some friends have talked about, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. But uh, instead of getting an excitatory thing, you get an inhibitory um, response. And so they're able to inhibit, which actually does kind of like that uh, lesion sim simulation. That was my understanding anyway. Yeah, I was a bit confused by that. But they did show that like for certain stimulations of this transcranial ultrasound, you can like induce trippy visuals. Yeah. Uh, you can potentially wake up people from comas. And yeah, in fact, that, that referenced, cool. I think someone, maybe you, you met at a party once. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I met this guy who's a st student at UCLA, and he yeah, he's been working on that. Um, I remember being kind of turned off by the fact that they were so interested in consciousness, but it was like assessing the, you know, whether someone who's like in a vegetative state is conscious, but apparently they've succeeded in waking some people and, up. And, and I think I made a note, even modulating uh, emotional experience, so yeah. positive mood changes. And, there, and as you mentioned, this is sort of compared to like, I guess the traditional things which are like not, uh, or totally invasive um, brain stimulation, like the original Penfield experiments or, um, you know, digging in someone's brain in some sort. They yeah. did mention this uh, previous work that I thought was really interesting where if you, um, inject current into the fusiform face area. Uh, the, the, do you remember this? They showed the guy who sort of, he's watching the, uh, the doctor do this, and then the doctor's face completely changes to a different face, and he goes, whoa, that's a trip. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. and when the stimulation stops, this, this face turns back yeah. to the normal doctor's face. To me, this is like, this experiment in some ways is the nail in the coffin for many, many of the um, sort of naive uh, realist theories that we'll get into later but anyway yeah uh, this, i think this stuff is incredibly fascinating and yeah it's you know it's neural correlates of consciousness but it's also like um i, I think a direct experiment that you do something you intervene in the brain and there is a difference in conscious experience yeah to me that seems like an incredibly fruitful avenue even though i feel like it gets a little bit um downplayed by like you know it's not the hard problem or something but but yeah, it's it, the, 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 I forget. Oh, I think it's in the Solms book, the hidden spring where he talks about a patient who is getting this, like, so they'll, they do these surges. If you haven't heard of this, it's pretty wild. Um, I remember seeing it on an episode of like Grey's Anatomy where they're doing 
uh, brain surgery and the skull is actually off and then they wake the patient up in the middle of the surgery because they need to ensure that you know the lesions that they're working on or whatever are being targeted and so they like talk to them and they probe around and they they were like sort of moving things around for this woman and she would go from states of being like totally elated to totally sad and totally depressed um, and yeah it's pretty wild it the I don't know if you've ever seen this like terrible movie from many years ago with Bruce Willis called surrogates no. And basically the premise is that um, you have like an Android version of yourself that looks like you and it like goes to work and stuff for you and you can just like hang out at home. But like the androids come home and I just remember this scene really vividly and they like have, it almost seems like a hookah kind of situation, but it's like an electric zapper and it's like them doing drugs and the surrogate, like the androids will like zap their brains with this thing. <laughs> and it makes me wonder if, you know, you might end up having a, ultrasound thing at home to kind of like loosen up the depression or whatever at the end of a rough day. Yeah, they did mention the default mode network, although that may have been the next talk. Do you remember? Um, yeah, no, no, it was in this one. Yeah, that you could target the default mode network, which is um, a thing that kind of gets disrupted during psych psychedelic use that kind of like takes you out of the worries of your day. So yeah, I mean, this could be a way to have a non-invasive, uh, non-drug-induced trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I think there's all these ketamine exposure things, right? Imagine going in for an hour, um, and uh, you know, having all of your depression alleviated, and then you know, sort of do some reprogramming. I one of the things I did say that was interesting from that the TDCS. Um, again, this is like from a podcast from years ago, but they they talked about how the effects would last for like quite a while, like days. And in this case, the effects only, I think they persisted for an hour, something like that. It was, it did persist after the, the thing went away, but not that long. So the next talk I have notes on is the childbirth talk, but I don't know if- <laughs> That is the next talk. That yeah. is the next talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this is a, I, I thought this was a really interesting talk. It was basically saying um, we should treat childbirth as a, um, you know, altered uh, conscious experience, consciousness experience. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of, what does that entail? That means like maybe we should think about set and setting for birth, right? Yeah. Maybe we should not medicalize birth as much and we should treat it as a sort of altered state of consciousness. Uh, a lot of crazy stuff was talked about in this talk. Like, uh, you know, women's, um, their gray matter grows at some point. Yeah. And it, maybe people thought it was sort of protective in the sense that, like, you want to be a good young mother. And she was saying, no, 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 no. Actually, it's just to protect you from surviving childbirth. Right? Yeah. Everything's sort of centered around childbirth. Um, that was an interesting uh, hypothesis, I thought. Yeah. And there was it was a bit of an advocacy statement around natural childbirth versus medically assisted childbirth. Definitely. And that, like, a lot of the positive things go away and the negative um you know, postpartum depression and things can increase. Uh, it felt, some of that stuff felt a little if inferential. And I was imagining, you know, me or you trying to say that to some of our friends, female friends about like, oh, you should, you know, you'll, you know, be less depressed. Like, don't get the medic. You know, I think it, it's, it's I did this at dinner, topic. actually. You did this? Yeah. Yeah. I, and they were super receptive. I, oh, I think like, um, I think there's been a big push um, to do natural childbirth as po uh, you know, if possible, definitely not planned cesarean section, which is yeah. sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. She mentioned, sort of in passing, this wasn't a part of her talk that, like, I guess uh, 
the rates of postpartum depression are higher if you get a cesarean yeah. section and things like that. And um, yeah, it, it did sort of remind me of um, like the ayahuasca experience that people talk about of like, oh, the 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 anguish and the vomiting and the bottle bodily pain is like a part of what becomes kind of emotionally transformative. Because I was thinking throughout the session, I was like, okay, you're going into this altered state of what birth is like you know we know what all the hormones are and stuff that get flooded into that system like could you create that could you you know if you're in this medical uh, situation where it's like oh i have to have an epidural i have to get a cesarean section could you kind of mimic some of those positive aspects via those that chemical flooding but i you know i didn't think that question would go over very well and i also didn't I, i didn't think it was like i think she was kind of making the point that it it was a much bigger experience than that it was a cool talk. All right, you want to take over for the? <laughs> yeah. So there was an there was a, a plenary session that turned out to be almost all philosophy. Yeah, it was a bit of a troll as well. Like I feel like we've had a multiple sessions where they kind of lure you in with something that sounds like something that we'd be really interested in, like hallucinations. Very interesting cognitive topic. Right? Yeah. So I think yeah they. <laughs> They, they started very pretty grounded, I would say, and then got more and more off the off the well, rails. Well, that I don't know if that was a joke, but one of the one of the they spe- did, yeah. one of the speakers is like, uh, is like I'm glad people are still clapping for these wild ideas. He's like, just so you know, they're getting crazier every yeah, single. That, that we've ordered these <laughs> yeah. by implausibility. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the first one was talking about illusion versus hallucination, and um, here I'm gonna. I think my critique of philosophy is that it's a. Uh, it's just a lot of definitions. It's trying to be precise with language, which is just inherently messy, right? And I, I think if you want to be precise, you, you got to go to math. Like, I, I, to me, this is my opinion, uh, philosophy just seems kind of like fruitless. It, it's like a lot of like intellectual masturbation well, I, let me. I want to let me read this quote okay. that she gave, which was so good because oh, the, I, the Bertrand Russell quote. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because she, it's you know, it felt like a bunch of mathematical proofs for the mental gymnastics, where she was like seeding points to people about like, oh yeah, yeah, it is about naive realism. I'll let Ben talk about that. But um, the uh, <laughs> well, actually, maybe we need to define naive realism before I say this quote, so it makes more sense. Well, well, okay. Let, let's say that the, the first talk was illusion versus hallucination, um, and then sort of like uh, dr- you know drilling down on these concepts and saying there's actually some subtle, oh, yeah. subtleties here with that with that definition. Let's That's add right. a column. Yeah. Let's add a row to this table, and then you get some kind of interesting things. You say, oh yeah, like okay, if we fill in this table, like I guess the definition was kind of incomplete. It was it wasn't very rigorous. I think this is the goal of philosophy. Good philosophy, sort of. Um, rigorizes language to the point where you see that there's other possibilities you had not accounted for because you had sort of entangled definitions. Yeah. You disentangle the definitions and you say, oh, there's a whole space of things that haven't been talked about yet. But I think most people listening to this podcast even slash generally most people would look at that table and roll their eyes at like, you know, it's trying to dis- dissect the difference between illusion and hallucination and saying like, oh, if you're attributing false properties to an item that does exist that's different than perceiving an item that d- that exists and attributing you know like that doesn't exist and attributing true properties to it like not, it's just you're seeing something that's not there 
Like I don't like the the the, <laughs> the the nuance there was not super interesting, which is where I thought it was gonna go in this whole session. It was like, oh, tell us why someone would hallucinate in this way versus that way, and that's not where they went. It was just definitions. Yeah, yeah, uh, but but then they only got worse after that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this thing that I, until today I didn't know what it was. Naive realism. Maybe maybe Bertrand Russell said it best. <laughs> maybe uh, that's how we can define it. Yeah. So, well, naive realism, I said after she explained it, I was like, oh, this is just like a normal dude. Like naive realism is like a normal <laughs> person th seeing like a lamp and being like, oh, that must be a lamp. Um, but and and to like our point from earlier about the emotional thing, like we are our perceptions and our assumptions much more than we are like than our than our perception is reality. So this is what Bertrand Russell said. Uh, we all start from naive, real, naive realism, i.e. the doctrine that things are as they seem. Oh, I guess he does define it. Uh, <laughs> we think that grass is green, that stones are hard, that snow is cold. Naive realism leads to physics, and physics, if true, uh, shows that naive realism is false. Therefore, naive realism is, if true, is false. Therefore, it is false. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, it makes me want to read that book. That's from like what, 1942 yeah. or something. Yeah, I read. He does like a history of of philosophy, um, like a survey of like all Western philosophy. That's pretty good. I read it a few years ago. Yeah, basically, these people are like the anti Anil Seth. Anil Seth is like your entire lived experience is a controlled hallucination. Like you have a mental model, right? And that's basically you're living inside your own brain. And the naive realists say, no, no, the when the grass is green, like that's actually a property out in the world that uh, the grass has. It's an objective reality out there outside of your mind. And uh, yeah, to do that, you basically have to discount pretty much all we know about physics. <laughs> but there's incredible mental gymnastics you can do to sort of, um, you know, keep up the game longer and longer, right? Um, and we saw that basically. So. You know, people got up there and um, said a lot of things about <laughs> ideal realism. And I feel like these people just must love arguing. Like, if you go into philosophy and then you pick something like ideal realism, uh, or I keep saying ideal, naive realism, um, you just must love being contrary, right? Yeah. Uh, and after each of these sessions, there would be a, a huge queue of people with really good objections. I was flabbergasted. And there was this guy... From MIT, you know, that's a, we've heard of MIT. These aren't people from like, these are like the top of the, yeah, yeah. Top of the crop. Um, he gives a whole talk about naive realism. And then one of the questions, they're, they're like, oh, we, you know, this guy, you can tell, he's like, I got a zinger, I'm gonna stump you. And he's like, what if I eat the banana, you know, the green banana? And the, and the guy basically threw, throws up his hands. I don't know if I told you this, because I think you had bounced by that point. He goes, well, just to be clear, I, I don't, I'm not an, I'm not a naive realist. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? You jerk. You spent this whole hour yeah. defending this thing that you don't even believe in. And you, you called it, by the way. You called it. Not that guy, but the one before yeah, it. You yeah. went, does this person even believe this? Yeah. Or are they just arguing? It's debate club. And yeah. they're looking for like semantically defensible positions. And that's it. And it's like, but yeah, but what do you think? And... To, I would say gen, the general credit of most people at this conference, um, th you get a lot of spicy takes that are totally unsubstantiated from, pe like people show their cards a lot. 
which I think is pretty cool. So mm -hmm. you'll be a, you know, oh, I'm a brain researcher and I've got this like really tiny pocket of stuff that I'm interested in and I've, I show this one small thing, but here's what I really think about consciousness. And they'll just like drop that at the end of session. I, and I actually really appreciate that. And it, I think in part it's because you don't have people ready to pounce, right? Uh, like everybody kept saying. Yeah, I, I think it seems like everybody has much more patience than I do. So maybe I need to change. Maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm the problem here. Uh, I think I think we have limited time and we got to, you know, get a, give our energy to the stuff that I mean, I have a hard time imagining almost anyone that I know being able to sit through those. I mean, you're a saint for having made it through all those you. sessions. But yeah. So, you know, just to recap, though, like when you really dig into this, um, uh, this concept, you basically and these people would say it, they're anti-emergence. They believe in top down causality. They're anti-hallucination, and they're anti-representation. They don't think that there's a representation in your head yeah. of uh, you know the banana that you're seeing. They yeah. think that there's sort of an interaction identity between you and the banana, and there's no representation. You're seeing it as it actually is. Yeah. So to come full circle on the them being trolls, like this is to be clear, this was a session about hallucinations where they're arguing that there are no hallucinations, which I guess is fair. This but. is true. Yeah. I mean, one of the people uh, and they're all kind of funny, by the way, I think you both, have to have a sense yeah, of humor yeah. when you go into something like this. Um, so, you know, she was she was sort of saying like one clear argument against this um, is the brain in the vat problem. A brain in a vat being fed the exact right sort of uh, percepts that it does not know it's a brain in a vat. It thinks it's a brain uh, in a body, uh, you know, doing a podcast right now. Like, how do you, how do you defend against that with this sort of um, naive realism? Well, you basically say brain in a vat's impossible, and here's why, <laughs> X, Y, Z. Um, but I did like how it, brain in a vat comes up so much in this branch of philosophy that they just call it BID, for short. <laughs> BIV. Oh yeah, the BIV. Yeah, we're gonna tackle that later. Uh, and Ben did come up, did query mid journey for some great brain and vat um, uh, art during the session. All right, let's talk about let's talk about this uh, Giovanni Mariscano um, character. Uh, this was this was. I might be. This might be a bold statement, but I think this is my favorite talk of the whole thing so far. Not maybe like the whole presentation, um, but the novelty, like this, this one novel idea I thought was really impressive and powerful. Um, and also he, ten he, he sort of like put his cards down and was like, you know, I think to me a big part of um, consciousness is story. And the, you know the story that you're kind of narrating in your head about yourself and about your world, and so he um, started off talking about Pavlov and um, classic conditioning, and it's like, oh, you're having this strong signal, which is like you need to eat something, or you're hungry, and you have the bell, and you're kind of wiring th these things together, and he said, this is actually not how most. Um, knowledge and storytelling works what happens is you have a bunch of really weak signals and then those weak signals get kind of like uh, pooled together over time and that's some really cool rat studies that they did where they were kind of like trying to kind of program like associate uh, smell and taste and um, water and and nausea I'm doing a bad job of explaining it, but um, they were kind of, kind of trying to tease out whether rats were kind of like creating this narration. And he had a... Yeah, they're basically saying like, it, there's like a, 
a story you can create that is powerful that sort of can link together very sort of weak uh, stimuli. Yeah, that might be that might be valuable in the future. So you're yeah. saying like, you know, in the classic conditioning case, the bell and the food are present, like it is clear this association. And so the example he gave was you're seeing a broken twig and you're seeing a rabbit running away. And it's like that could mean nothing, but that could mean that there's a big animal like a bear that's nearby. And if you're able to, to imagine that story of the bear, you're probably more likely to survive. You know, yeah. you're kind of the, the low-level equivalent of, um, uh, you know, detective, right? And he talked about kind of detective stories and like that's, that's kind of like part of what the human narrative is. And you could really think of, you know, you know apes to humans, you know, to higher-level culture as kind of like escalating complexity in the, these narratives that we're able to put together through low-level signaling. But I thought the really cool thing was that he did some, then he did some hard neuroscience, and he said uh, it, it appears to be, at least from his experiments, that some of this storytelling ability comes from our uh, uh, endocannabinoid receptor yeah. sites. Yeah, and then he talked about um, using THC in these studies as a way of um, basically in increasing the... Um, uh, the storytelling capacity or even uh, I think they did like a lesion study with like rats yeah. right where they just like didn't let the the CB1 receptor operate. oh yeah yeah yeah, like yeah that. that's right um, and so and then you know he was kind of extrapolating again at the end a little bit loosely um, I'd be interested to follow him and see kind of where these papers go but they were kind of saying like you know ketamine and other psychedelics may have this property as well where it's like actually facilitating more environmental kind of storytelling, like being able to pull together small bits um, from the environment. Yeah, like sort of small stimuli and connecting them. And he sort of made the point that you, you know, you can take it until it's pathological, until yeah. you don't want to associate every sort of uh, small stimulus because there won't be something, in, it won't be an interesting story to tell that's evolutionary yeah. advantageous. You'll just become like delusional. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was like a pretty profound well, and to, it's a really simple explanation of why, you know, it's like you're like hard problem, like why should you need to have phenomenal experience at all? Well, whatever that confabulator is, the storyteller that's kind of putting those clues together um, in a conditioning mindset needs to be more complex than the frog, right? The, the frog is reacting in all those different contexts, grabbing the flies or whatever, but the, if the monkey is going to like need to have all this visual data that's getting pulled up into that confabulator to process and be like, oh, wait, there was this and there was this and there was this. There's no way a frog could do that. By the way, I don't know if you mentioned, but this, this whole session was, was a small session. It was one of the parallel yeah. sessions, and it was called NCC, Neural Correlates of Consciousness, which is, I feel like, almost a pejorative term used <laughs> by like David Chalmers because that's the easy problem, right? Yeah. However, this stuff was mega juicy. I, I loved this session. Yeah. Uh, much more than the philosophy uh, plenary session, which is the reverse from yesterday. Yeah. Um, the, I don't know if I want to talk about all of the ones from this. The, um, the one that I did really like was the propofol anesthesia one. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. That, uh, so this is another MIT guy, right? Yeah, he's from MIT. Yeah. I, I really wish he Adam had had like double the time yeah <laughs> he I, he did an admirable job of he's, packing in a lot of he's um, definitely going to be groundwork if, if he, this this kind of research was really impressive um the 
the coolest graph and kind of concept that he was he came up with was they were talking about like what is what happens when you're taking propofol so propofol is like a classic anesthetic they use in um, when you're having surgery um, and so he talked about the difference between dynamic stability and dynamic instability so dynamic stability is sort of like a um, uh, pendulum so a pendulum is in motion, but if, if you know a few um, things about the pendulum, you know exactly where it's going and where it's going to come back to um, versus, you know, like some chaotic system, like a, a, a babbling brook or a stream where it's sort of things are, things are going, kind of going in all directions. And he showed this graph of, um, what, what was it? Was it like certain, was it EKG or EEG? I don't remember what the what the input was, but he showed these graphs of kind of what it was, was uh, it was actually like a like brain probe, like it was like 256. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was brain probes. It was it was actually intracranial brain probes um, on uh, primates um, like monkeys. And so they could track kind of neuronal activity. And what happened is when they're on propofol, a thought would essentially go out. It's like, hey, let's go find some some friends. And your brain activity was so slow that it just like never found anyone. And it would just stop. Yeah, he, d he did this really, I mean, so it's a high dimensional thing, right? He's, uh, he's not only has like many channels, but then he's sort of um, stacking in time, right? Because yeah. he's looking at the dynamics. And, but when you use like sort of a dimensionality reduction technique and you graph it in 2D, you get these wonderful sort of like uh, non-anesthetic, anesthetic, anesthetic uh, things where like you hear a tone and there's sort of like this like loop that always comes back to itself when you're um, in normal like yeah. non-anesthetic mode. And then when you're in anesthetic mode, you hear the tone and it's sort of this loop that goes and just kind of unravels and never, it never comes yeah. back, right? It's yeah. dynamically unstable. Uh, it was really beautiful. I mean, dimensionality reduction is kind of, you know, um, it's a little bit risky because you, you can sort of, there's a lot of human interpretation that goes along. But yeah. I thought it was such a beautiful sort of uh, visual to like what seems to be happening, you know, when your yeah. sort of mind unravels in the anesthetic state. Um, but he, his main point was sort of showing that there, there was, I guess, a debate on how anesthetics work. Do they uh, sort of lock you into this super rigid, resonant state where you just can't get out of this very like basic uh, sort of just awareness consciousness or non-awareness consciousness or something like that? Or is it that it unravels everything, right? And then none of the pieces of your brain, they're totally fragmented. They can't speak to each other. And so is it this dissonance or this sort of like resonance kind of thing? Um, and different literature, I guess, says different things. And so his, his model and his sort of dynamic um, differential equation sort of stuff, I think showed pretty convincingly to me, at least, yeah. from what I know about these kind of techniques, that it was uh, an unraveling. Yeah, right? the instability. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I would say the other one, the only other one that I would kind of talk about from that session was the uh, mind blanking. <laughs> okay, so... We were so tired by the end. Like I, I, asked, I asked my partner about this because, okay, so mind blanking is sort of, uh, they kind of define it as when you sort of blip out of existence and you're like, oh, how much time has passed? What was it? And then if someone would be like, what were you thinking about just then? You'd be like, nothing. And I feel like this maybe happened to me twice. And I said this in Charlotte, my like, partner. Wait, it's only ever happened twice in your life? I think so. It's like very rare. And Charlotte was like, oh, that happens to me every day. 
And, uh, you know, the other people at dinner were like, oh, yeah, that happens to me all the time. And like, well, so this happened, what, two days ago when we were doing the podcast. And I had multiple moments where I was like in the middle of saying something and I just like ran out of gas. And um, so like this was super interesting to me because I was like, yeah, I just I just experienced this. And our, our by the way, our. Our rationale for this is that it was CO2 content in the room. So we now have a CO2. Uh, <laughs> By the way, I mean, Mount Etna erupted. I actually wonder if uh, the baseline CO2 is a little bit higher because yeah. the air quality and all that. I, I don't know if that disambiguates like CO2 and other We've gone up quite a bit since the start of this recording. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, um, yeah, so mind blanking is sort of when you blip out of existence and you're not thinking about anything. And it, it basically, it was really interesting and uh, the questions kind of went on like well past the, the sort of time limit, but I was enjoying it because I think there's a lot of thorny questions. Like, how, how do you even test for this? Like, if it's self-report and you're saying, okay, sit there and, uh, you know, try to s- figure out when you have a mind blank yeah, event like you and then when you think you do, hit the, the button, yeah. there's, like that lights up a very particular circuit of the brain. And they were criticizing this. So there was yeah. sort of a response to this. And they said, well, actually, what we should do is indirect, where I think the task was something really monotonous. Like, you have to hit a button every two minutes on the dot for an hour. And then eventually, someone's going to space out. And then you go, hey, why didn't you hit the button? The timer. And they go, oh, I, I guess I blanked out. And then you record that. I think that was sort of the gist of it. Um, and you get totally different brain activity for that. It looks more like uh, like a microsleep right versus yeah. the other one where it just looks like sort of a deadening of your inner voice which was still interesting yeah yeah the microsleep i thought was really fascinating because he was sort of saying like and this was the, this really resonated with my experience from the other night which was like we were super tired we like had that whole like horrible travel day and and he was saying like your nrem sleep which is like you're not dreaming sleep like your brain is kind of like i don't know in repair or memory consolidate reconciliation I don't, know, I don't know exactly what all the bits are of nrem but like <laughs> that that felt very resonant it's like oh yeah I'm, my parts of my brain are just trying to sleep it's like <laughs> it's time yeah but yeah, I think that uh, kind of wraps up the day. Um, we had a lot of strong statements, I think, last time that we should um, always go to the plenaries and then the <laughs> parallel sessions were skippable. But we experienced the reverse this time. Yeah, and we didn't talk about the poster session, but maybe we'll uh, talk about, we'll go to the next one and we can talk about them both together. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, thanks guys for joining us for episode five, I think. Episode five, but... Uh, you know, from Terramina, this is number three. Number three. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you next time. Join it. Learn more about us at concon.show. Or come see us, Terramina. Yeah, come see us at Terramina. Beautiful, beautiful town. <laughs> what?